Hey folks, we're about to jump into The Sandman from E.T.A. Hoffman. It's very good, but it's 200 years old, and believe it or not, there are new books that are good as well, and we'd like to tell you about one of them. Author J.R. Hamatashin has a new book out. It's called You Know It's True, and you know what is true? It's goddamn good. <laughs> this is his fourth collection. We love his other books, with a voice that is often still confused, but is becoming ever louder and clearer. You Shall Never Know Security, and a deep horror that was very nearly awe. Definitely worth grabbing as well. This collection, You Know It's True, I really enjoyed because it's not just new, it's new, as in it's very connected to this very topsy-turvy pandemic world that we're living in. First story that I read was House Cats, because I suspected cat attacks would happen in it. Wasn't disappointed. I'd recommend that one. It also includes some other great stories, like for most of my sad life, I thought I would just die alone. It's about a young woman going to a wedding. Spoilers. Go well. <laughs> I read May as well blame it on the heat because I've had heat waves on my mind as you'll hear in today's closing track. That one was also a, it was a horrific trippy almost house on the borderland type story. One phrase that really stuck with me there was fetid corn pops. Ugh. <laughs> Also, Nights Devour My Days, where a 30-something woman starts dating this guy, Gerald, and he's not exactly what he seems. My favorite story in the collection, I don't know what that says about me, but it's called Short Bloom, Long Fading. It really is a story about how people just adapt to craziness. In that story, there's these holes in the ground and they'll just, a tentacle will just come out of it and grab you and people just get used to it. Avoid the holes, plug them up. It's just something people are dealing yeah. with, but then boy, at the end of the story, it took quite a turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, check that yeah. one out. The last one I want to talk about, It's Always Time to Go. I really like this one. It's about some kids having a sleepover, and it's awesome. This collection has 12 stories, with the last one, Beholden to the Past, Impatient to the Present, Cheated of the Future, uh, being a novella. JR claims that this is his last collection of short stories, but if this thing sells like wildfire, then perhaps he'll make more joy. I think it might be his best yet. I do too. Check it out. Go to his Amazon page. We'll link out in the show notes. JR Hamantashen. You know it's true. And now, ETA Hoffman's The Sandman. HPPodcraft.com. Certainly you must all be uneasy that I have not written for so long, so very long. My mother, I'm sure, is angry, and Clara will believe that I am passing my time in dissipation, entirely forgetful of her fair angelic image that is so deeply imprinted on my heart. Such, however, is not the case. Daily and hourly I think of you all, and the dear form of my lovely Clara passes before me in my dreams, smiling upon me with her bright eyes as she did when I was among you. But how can I write to you in the distracted mood which has been disturbing my every thought? A horrible thing has crossed my path. Dark forebodings of a cruel, threatening fate tower over me like dark clouds, which no friendly sunbeam can penetrate. I will now tell you what has occurred. I must do so. That I plainly see. The mere thought of it sets me laughing like a madman. <laughs> oh, my dear Lothair, how shall I begin? How shall I make you in any way realize that what happened to me a few days ago can really have had such a fatal effect on my life? If you were here, you could see for yourself. But as it is, you will certainly take me for a crazy fellow who sees ghosts. To be brief, this horrible occurrence, the painful impression of which I am in vain endeavoring to throw off, is nothing more than this. But some days ago, namely on the 30th of October, at 12 o'clock noon, a barometer dealer came into my room and offered me his wares. I bought nothing and threatened to throw him downstairs, upon which he took himself off of his own accord. 
You know, if the story ended right there, that would be the best weird tale we've ever covered. Wow. Bam. The barometer dealer. <laughs> but that was merely the first grain of this novelette, a classic of genre fiction. And that was the first paragraph of E.T.A. Hoffman's The Sandman. Do you think uh, barometer dealers had turf wars or, or maybe they had like a little office where they fought over leads like Glenn, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross? <laughs> yes. It's either way a high pressure job, I'm sure. Uh, welcome to HP Podcraft, Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I am Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. We're here on Patreon in a chalk circle with our subscribers. You guys are in here with us now, so I really don't recommend stepping out. Don't do it. Don't break the circle. Since we're talking about chalk circles, since you brought that up, I want to make a movie recommendation. Uh-huh. It's the beginning of Ghoulies 4. <laughs> That's my movie recommendation. <laughs> the whole thing is a good, bad B movie, but the beginning is the greatest film I've ever seen. Maybe like the first six or seven minutes. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about when you watch it. It's in a Manimal-esque warehouse. There's a chalk circle and some security guards involved. I've never seen anything better. It's, Check it out. It's pretty amazing. Yes. Who was that reader? Oh, that reader was Levi Nunez. Yes. What's going on with Levi, I wonder? Oh, my God. Well, Levi is still looting the body, as one does. But he makes that kick-ass, psychedelic Dungeons & Dragons-inspired music. He keeps releasing new music videos all the time. So head yeah. on over to YouTube. Watch his stuff. You're going to love it so much that you'll want to go to Bandcamp and buy it. It's sort of when you play a really good D&D game and you go, I'm so sad that this adventure ended. With Loot the Body, the adventure never ends. <laughs> it never ends. Check it out on YouTube. I love his uh, his videos, too. They're, they're rad. They're great. This story, yeah. The Sandman, or novelette, rather, has been recommended by many listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, Hoffman was actually mentioned by H.P. Lovecraft in his essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature, yeah, yeah. where he wrote, The celebrated short tales and novels of Ernst Theodore Wilhelm Hoffman are a byword for mellowness of background and maturity of form, though they incline to levity and extravagance and lack the exalted moments of stark, breathless terror, which a less sophisticated writer might have achieved. Generally, they convey the grotesque rather than the terrible. That's an interesting, too sophisticated huh. to find those moments of stark, breathless terror. That's so rare. Yeah. Comment from Lovecraft, huh? I don't know if I agree with him on that, because I think this is pretty top-notch stuff. Now, our listeners over the years, as I said, have requested this one as well. Trev Foran wrote quite a while ago. I hope you get around to covering E.T.A. Hoffman sometime. He's mentioned in Supernatural Horror. I highly recommend the story of the Sandman, and unlike this, you will love it. So I actually don't know what story that was on, but clearly we didn't like it. And he is right. We love this one. Hey guys, can I submit the story The Sandman, Dare Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman for consideration for upcoming HP Podcraft podcasts? This is from a listener named Damien who wrote, it's a rather weird tale and possibly the first mention in literature of The Sandman. E.T.A. Hoffman's most famous tale is, of course, The Nutcracker which is more of a fairy tale but contains the rather hideous sight of the seven-headed mouse king which was understandably changed into a normal mouse in the children's adaptation in the ballet because, yikes, that is horrifying. <laughs> True. Uh, I don't know if that would have been such a Christmas classic if it was the Seven-Headed Mouse King. We got this from Andy. When you asked about previous works of fiction related to the themes of this novel, I thought of E.T.A. Hoffman's novella The Sandman, first published in 1816, two years before the first publication of Frankenstein. And so this was a comment on our episodes about Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Was 
one of the times we got this recommended to us. Yeah. Uh, the comment actually does kind of spoil the plot of the story, so I won't read it, but it finishes by saying, I don't think that Shelley was actually reading any German novellas, but it shows that ideas like that were definitely part of the era's mindset. So this is related in some ways to that novel. I genuinely didn't know what the end of the story was because I committed to read only the first half for this episode. Mm-hmm. I kind of enjoy, I kind of like doing that when I don't really know. Yeah. And so when I read this, I was pasting in the comments of people who recommended it. And this one blew the ending for me. Yeah. And I was a little bummed, which is funny because we always mock. I'm sorry if we're spoiling this for you, but it's been around for 200 years. You know, but (laughs) this time it really did blow up for me. And I was a little upset. But then I thought, you know, if I was going to find out this way, I'm glad it was Andy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I have read the whole story and I think you think it's spoiling it, but it isn't actually spoiling it. And I can't explain it without spoiling it so just keep reading the future's so exciting for me right now (laughs) it sure is what do we know about eta hoffman i know very little that nutcracker thing was a surprise for me to tell you the truth never think of that as having an author you know yeah well i just i didn't know it was based on a story i thought it was a ballet it was just written as a ballet i didn't know it was based on anything but ernst theodore amadeus hoffman was born in 1776 in east prussia now modern day kaliningrad in russia I think I've been there. Oh, really? I went to Kalinin, but it got names were get, being changed when I was there back in. Well, you, you know, were there when it was the Soviet Union, right? It was still the Soviet Union when I went. Yeah. So some of the names were being changed, like uh, Leningrad was being changed to St. Petersburg when I was there, and there were a few others, Novograd as well. So I'm not sure. Maybe that. Maybe I was actually in that place at one point. One of our listeners just jotted down Kaliningrad of Cthulhu? Question mark. <laughs> Uh, He was sent off to religious school, a strict Lutheran religious school. He learned how to play music and began to write music, but he also got into writing prose and poetry as well as drawing, a man of many talents and interests. He seemed to have the hots for this woman. She was his music teacher, 10 years older than him, and married Dora Hmm. Hatt. Wrong kind of exploring, Dora. (laughs) Causing some kind of stir, he was asked to move out of town. And eventually he ended up in Dresden, Germany, and then he went to Berlin. It was in Berlin when Hoffman seriously got into composing. He wrote an operetta that got the notice of the Queen, uh, Prussia, Louise, and that got him in contact with the director of the Royal Theater. (laughs) You're putting this in such networking terms. I love it. It was. It was totally networking. Put those two guys in contact. Synergy. That's what happened then. Synergy. (laughs) However, he got in trouble for doing caricatures of military officers that I guess weren't very flattering. So he got moved to central Poland, and in his exile, that's where he really got busy writing and composing. This guy was born right around Voltaire's death, so I guess he picked up the crazy life baton, the yeah. offending royalty baton. <laughs> I really like his artwork, by the way. If you, if yeah. you want to Google image search it, folks, it's got that German fairy tale feel. It's really cool stuff. Uh, he assimilated into Polish society well, but when Napoleon's troops came in 1806, all that Prussia bureaucrats lost their jobs and were forced back to Berlin. It was a hard time for him because it was occupied by Napoleon's forces, Berlin was, and he moved to Bamberg in 1808, where he got a job as a theater manager. Uh, He had his first hit in 1809 with Ritter Gluck. It's here where he started going by ETA. The A isn't really his given name, Amadeus. He stole Amadeus from Mozart because it was, well... A homage, I guess one could say. Yeah. Poor E.T.A. Hoffman, war broke out between France and Prussia in 1813, and that made theater work 
pretty hard to get. Well, all the theaters were shut down because all the phantoms were called to the front lines. <laughs> they had to drop sandbags on the enemies. <laughs> that was where France clearly had the advantage in that war. Actually, in the Battle of Leipzig, <laughs> yeah. they knew the allied forces against Napoleon knew, take out the phantoms first. That's why Napoleon was defeated in that battle. They all came in holding their hands up at the level of their throats. Yes, that helped. But more importantly... All of the, the infantry troops dressed like Christine Diane. <laughs> and you could audibly hear the phantoms, I can't do it to Christine! <laughs> Just took those forces out. Oh, So after Napoleon's defeat in 1814, <laughs> Hoffman went back to Berlin and he got some more work and he had a well-received opera called Undine. And that got him lots of work for the next few years, but his quality declined. You know, He, got, he came in strong and I think he was just kind of taking paychecks, you know, that sort of thing. And he yeah. died of syphilis in 1822 at the ripe old age of 46. Ooh, great. Moving on. <laughs> so this story, Der Sandman, which is German for the Sandman, came out in 1817 in a collection called Nachtstücke. Nachtstücke, which translates to night pieces, which reminds me of an album by Pitch Black Manor called Night Creeps <laughs> that isn't out yet. It's coming out next week, Woo. August 13th. You oh. can pre-order that now. Just go to pitchblackmanor.com where the album comes in the form of t-shirts and toys, cool stuff. I will play another track from that on the way out today. Since it's August, we actually have a track on the album called Heat Wave, and I know it's very hot out there right now, so uh, we'll play that one. I'm so excited! <laughs> So I hope you enjoy the track and maybe think about picking up the album. Yes. Uh, why don't we get into the story? This first bit is epistolatory. Our protagonist, Nathaniel, is writing a letter to his pal, Lothair. We quickly find out Lothair has a sister, Clara, whom Nate is quite fond of. Now, he's had an incident. Something has upset him. It's going to sound crazy, but he's going to explain what's going on. He says, laugh at me, I beg of you. Laugh with all your heart. But, oh, God, my hair stands on end and it is in mad despair that I seem to be inviting your laughter. <laughs> that kind of stuff I'm such a sucker for. So right away, I was like, I got to hear this guy's story. You know, laugh madly in despair and all this business. That's great. Oh, it's so good. He begins by talking about his childhood when he was a kid and it was bedtime. His mother would tell him and his brothers and sisters that the Sandman was coming soon. You better get to bed. And he says he could remember actually hearing somebody coming up the stairs. They would scurry off to bed, leaving his father alone in the study with, I guess, the Sandman. When he asked his mother who the Sandman was, she explained, oh, he's not real. It's just something to motivate kids. You know, like, oh, the Sandman's coming, get up to bed. Which I'm sure it was as of the time of this writing. It's kind of hard in the fit of quick research that I did. I'm sure there's probably sources that have this a little better documented than the internet. The origins are hard to find. The, this, a lot of sources attribute the character to the work of Hans Christian Andersen, but that work where he wrote about the Sandman was 1841, which is obviously a few decades after this story. Yeah. Or the story is mentioned, which is, I think, it's 1817. Is that what the date of it is? So the way in which the character is used here in the story, though, I think it's obvious this is something that both the reader would have been aware of and something that the kids in the story know about. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a mythical character of European folklore that at this time would have already been familiar to people. Yeah. It has an obvious mythological component, which is explaining those sleepers you get in your eyes, which are like little granules of sand. Yeah. So probably it's very, 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 very old. Generally in the folklore, the sand is there to get you to sleep and give you dreams, as far as I understand it. But this story is turning that character on its head a bit by making it scary. Probably in a few different mythological iterations, it was scary as well. Because any adult that's going to come interact with a child is just scary by nature. Oh, yeah. In today's popular literature, obviously it's The Sandman by Neil Gaiman that people think about. Mm -hmm. Probably a few listeners thought that's what we were going to be talking about today, and I'm very sorry. <laughs> We're not. 
Uh, although we have talked about it quite a bit over the last 500 episodes, it comes up here and there, and it's a beautiful work of literature, mm -hmm. all of those books. That was a rehab of an old character, though, from DC, right? It was an old guy that wore a gas mask yeah. who would put people to sleep with a gun or something. Mm -hmm. That's right. There's also the Spider-Man villain, the Sandman. Yes. Who was in the very first Spider-Man comic, I think the first comic book I ever read. Oh, so wow. I've always had a special affection for the Sandman. And then there's the Metallica song, which is a big hit. Of course. And these kids definitely would have heard that Metallica song. So their mother is cashing in on the popularity of Enter Sandman. As good mothers when do. When she's trying to scare these kids, yeah. Nathaniel wanted to know more about the Sandman, but his mother told him, there's no Sandman, dear child. When I say the Sandman's coming, I only mean that you're sleeping and can't keep your eyes open, just as if sand had been sprinkled into them. The answer of my mother's did not satisfy me. Nay, the thought soon ripened in my childish mind that she only denied the Sandman's existence to prevent our being terrified of him. So that explanation didn't work for him because he heard something coming up the stairs when he went to bed. Legends don't make noise. So he asked this old woman who helped his little sister out. who was like a nanny, I guess, or some kind of special caregiver. And she told him the true legend of the Sandman. He is a wicked man who comes to children when they won't go to bed and throws a handful of sand into their eyes so that they start out bleeding from their heads. He puts their eyes in a bag and carries them to the crescent moon to feed his own children who sit in the nest up there. They have crooked beaks like owls so that they can pick up the eyes of naughty human children. Ho oh, ho ho! Whoa! That is dark. And of course this wigs him out even more. Yeah, that wigged me out. Yeah. Eye stuff, super scary, baby birds, horrifying. Any, any kind of mammalian child, I am all about it. <laughs> Baby birds, get them out of here. They just are a nest of albino Mr. Burns is mewling for worms. It's disgusting. Yeah. Get that out of my rack room. Not interested. So as he got older, Nathaniel started to understand that the story wasn't true, but it still stuck with him. And he always liked stories about goblins and ghosts and spooky things after that. It affected him so much that it inspired a love of the macabre. You guys sound so Lovecraftian for protagonists. Yeah. Now, when he was about 10 years old, he moved out of the nursery and into his own little room. He knew that someone was coming to speak with his father after he went to bed, and Nathaniel wanted to know who it was. So one night, he pretended to go to bed early, and when his mother and brothers and sisters all went to bed, he snuck back into his father's study and hid behind the curtains. Curtains for, like, a wardrobe. So I was excited because I love closet peeping, but I also love peeping behind curtains. So this is, like, this is a very exciting development. Closet <laughs> peeping, curtain peeping. When you're into creeping and peeping, this is the, this is the real deal. It is. Soon after, he heard footsteps coming up the stairs. The door opened, he peeked out, and he saw the Sandman was actually this older man, Capellius, a guy he actually knew, a man that he and his whole family had eaten with many times before. It's Mr. Capellius! Such a Scooby-Doo revelation there. <laughs> it's not really a monster at all. It's the first person we met in this episode. Now, he describes him as this. Imagine a large, broad-shouldered man with a head disproportionately big, a face the color of yellow ochre, a pair of bushy gray eyebrows, from beneath which a pair of green cat's eyes sparkled with the most penetrating luster, and with a large nose curved over his upper lip. His wry mouth was often twisted into a malicious laugh when a couple of dark red spots appeared upon his cheeks, and a strange hissing sound was heard through his gritted teeth. Capellius always appeared in an ashen gray coat, cut in old-fashioned style, with waistcoat and breeches of the same color, while his stockings were black and his shoes were adorned with agate buckles. All the kids thought this guy was a creep, and they didn't like him, and he was mean to them, and he would tease them, and he would do things like touch their food. He was a weird guy. 
Yeah, he called them little beasts. His mother didn't like this guy. As you say, the touching the food, this part was the worst. It says, his whole figure was hideous and repulsive, but most disgusting to us children were his coarse, brown, hairy fists. It, ugh. Indeed, we did not like to eat anything he had touched with them. This he had noticed. This is what a jerk he is. And it was his delight under some pretext or other to touch a piece of cake or some nice fruit that our kind mother might quietly have put on our plates, just for the pleasure of seeing us turn away with tears in our eyes Aww. in disgust and abhorrence, no longer able to enjoy the treat intended for us. Poor kids. Which finally made that Metallica lyric click with me. Getting touched by hairy hands. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, yeah. Nathaniel kind of believes that if anybody was the Sandman, it would be this guy. And he remained hidden in, while Nate's father spoke to Capellius. But then things get weird. They removed their coats and then put on gray frocks. Then they opened up a cupboard, but it wasn't actually a cupboard. It was a big space with a fireplace inside of it. Then there are all these tools around. His father looked different to him at this moment, kind of evil. And Capellius had some red hot tongs to take things out of the fire to hammer. And Capellius says, eyes here, eyes. And this, for some reason, freaks out Nathaniel so much because of course the legend is that they steal eyes of children, this, the same man does. It freaks him out so much that he reveals his hiding place. Capellius grabs Nathaniel and he says, now we have a pretty pair of eyes. And then he begins to move hot tongs towards Nate's eyes. Mm -hmm. His father says, no, leave Nathaniel his eyes. And then we get this. Whereupon Coppelius answered with a shrill laugh. Well, let the lad have his eyes and do his share of the world's crying. But we will examine the mechanism of his hands and feet. And then he seized me so roughly that my joints cracked and screwed off my hands and feet, afterwards putting them back again, one after the other. And there's something wrong here, he mumbled. But now it's as good as ever. <laughs> the old man has caught the idea, hissed and lisped Coppelius. But all around me became black. A sudden cramp darted through my bones and nerves, and I lost consciousness. A gentle warm breath passed over my face. I woke as from the sleep of death. My mother had been stooping over me. Now, what did you make of that? I, I thought it was some kind of creepy hallucination. I didn't yeah. know anything and it didn't make me suspect what I now know is going on, but it, it freaked me out because dreams work that way. Yeah. I, sometimes your body has strange properties or things just come off or it felt very nightmarish. Well, I don't think you know what you think you know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. It, maybe that is exactly what it is, is that it's nightmarish. Mm. I don't know. But it, it, it was effective because it was just so odd. Yeah. Screwing off your, well, I won't take his eyes, but let me check these out. And then he puts them back on. Yeah. Ah, what? It's not like he improved them as well, but now it's as good as ever. Something wrong here, but now it's as good as ever. So he... Yeah, he fixed a little... He did something. Yeah. Ooh, I didn't like it. This story's awesome. It's pretty cool. It seems to have all been a dream. Nate had taken ill for weeks. When he finally recovered, his mother was there with him. Yeah, this this gave him a little brain fever or something. After that, he didn't see Capellius again. However, a year later, there was a night he was with his father and they had heard footsteps. His mother said, that is Capellius. And your father has said, yes, yes, it is. But this is the last time. And he tells Nate to go to bed. That night, Nate's awoken by a loud bang and then a shriek of grief. He went down to check it out and he found that a servant girl standing over his dead father, his face burnt black, he curses Capellius. Yeah, his father's dead. There's an explosion. They told the authorities about Capellius, but he was never seen again. Recently, he's had an incident. Grown-up Nathan has recently had an incident where he was with this uh, barometer dealer 
who tried to get him to buy something. Nathaniel believes that this guy is actually Capellius in disguise. He's calling himself Giuseppe Coppola, the optician. Right. So that was the deal. This Coppelius guy was around the night his father, I thought, perhaps shot himself. It was strange because later it says, you know, it says on the floor of the smoking hearth lay my father dead with his face burned, blackened and hideously distorted. But then it says later my father was laid out in his coffin. His features were again as mild and gentle as they had been in his life. Hmm. So he didn't have his head blown off or anything. I think maybe his face was blackened by some sort of explosion or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's um, kind of clarified a little bit later. It is? Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. It was a little confusing. So this guy Capellius disappears, which is pretty suspicious, I would think, since he was with him that night. This barometer dealer, Capellius, has not even altered his name, uh, Nathaniel says. He describes himself, I am told, as a Piedmontese optician and calls himself Giuseppe Coppola. So it, the first guy was a German. This isn't an Italian. Mm-hmm. He ends his letter by saying he plans on avenging his father. The next letter we get is from Clara to Nathaniel. And we find out that she intercepted the letter to Lothair and she read it. She expresses how this letter upset her. She was worried for her safety, but she says to him that all of this stuff that's going on with him, it's all in his mind. She explains that she's talked to some science guys about his father's death and that if he was, you know, doing some alchemical experiments or just messing with things, is it possible that there would be an explosion? And the chemists were like, well, heck yeah. Of course there could be. Yeah. You know, that she talks to the apothecary. The apothecary. Who was happy to blab about this. And yeah. they say, of course, there's lots of explosive stuff that he could have been messing with. And that totally could have been what happened. So with that, he's like, maybe she says, maybe Cape- Capellius didn't actually cause your father's death. And he was just messing with some stuff and it exploded. And that was that. It seems that uh, your obsession with Capellius is what is making you think that this other guy, you know, Capella is him. So the best thing for you to do is to get these dark forces that you've conjured up and just push them out. Get rid of, don't think about Capellius or Coppola. Don't listen to Acapella. Don't, <laughs> don't do any of that stuff. You Don't wear Capizio shoes, none of it. You're giving them power by worrying about it and thinking about it. So let it go. It's a pretty skeptical and modern way of describing what she thinks the problem is. Yeah. And I was really impressed with this character, mm-hmm. described by all the men as being childlike and simple. But then when you hear her voice, she's all Dana Scully. Yeah. Even a little caustic to his childhood trauma, I thought, when she says, your father no doubt occasioned his own death by some act of carelessness, of which Capellius was completely guileless. Yeah. It's like, whoa, or guiltless. And I thought... That was a pretty mean thing to say. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if you don't know the facts, why lay blame on the file? Doubtless your dad was being an idiot, okay? So you should just be over this. Oh. Whoa. Listen to this passage, which she sort of described, but she says, if we have a mind which is sufficiently firm, strengthened by the joy of life, always to recognize this strange enemy as such and calmly follow the path of our own inclination and calling, then the dark power will fail in its attempt to gain a form that shall be a reflection of ourselves. This stuff was kind of neat yeah. because it is... True, right? If we have willingly yielded ourselves up to the dark powers, they are known often to impress upon our minds any strange unfamiliar shape which the external world has shown in our way, so that we ourselves kindle the spirit which we in our strange delusion believe to be speaking to us. It is the phantom of our own selves, the close relationship with which, and its deep operation on our mind, casts us into hell or transports us into heaven. Mm-hmm. A very, like, uh, cognitive behavioral way of talking about yeah. these things, but but so true that we are scanning for the positive or negative, and that's up to us. So when something unknown enters the equation, whether we de- determine that that's a threat or an asset, it's entirely up to you, says the woman Mm -hmm. who's so silly and childlike. I was like, whoa, for a a female perspective in 1817, this is really refreshing. This is super cool. Yeah. 
Now we get to our third letter, which is from Nathaniel to Lothair again. He expresses that he's very impressed with Claire's letter, and he calls it a profound philosophical epistle that proves Capellius and Coppola are only in his mind. He explains that he's attending classes of the famous physics professor Spallanzani. Now, this professor told Nathaniel that Capella is not Capellius because he knows yeah, him. he knows him. Because I've known him yeah. for years. And yeah, he's he's not a German dude. He's, not, he's Italian. He's from Northwest Italy. He's not the same guy. Don't worry about it. So it seems that he's come around to reason. Yes. And he's not going to brain this Coppola unnecessarily, mm -hmm. <laughs> as he was planning to do, I think. Yeah. It took an outside, this is very much like any couple, where she laid out all the reasons and he goes, you know what, you're right. Not because I listened to you, but because some unknown third party told me. Oh, dude. Uh, you know, isn't it's that true. such a... <laughs> So true. I would be so mad if I were her because he barely recognized. He goes, that was a really nice thing you laid out there. Anyway, some other dude told me that's not him. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, you're probably right. Oh. Uh, so he explains that when he recently visited Spallanzani, that in his apartment, there was a woman, very beautiful, just sitting in the other room that he could only see slightly through an open curtain. And he later learned that that woman was Spallanzani's daughter, Olympia who he keeps away from people in a very controlling and obsessive way. Interesting. And then we leave the letter writing format, which is kind of strange because yeah. we get... It's abrupt. Yeah. And then no more letters, the rest of it. The author teases out the fate of Nathaniel. So we got a narrator now that's saying, okay, well, I got these three letters from Lothair. And then I'm going to tell you the rest of the story now, because this kind of sets things up. And he kind of gives a very long paragraph, kind of teasing out the fate of Nathaniel in an almost Criswellian sort of way. <laughs> yeah. Can your heart stand what I'm about to tell you? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And he, he thought it would be more gripping for you, the reader, to peer into these lives a bit from by hearing their own voices, yeah. since he had access to these letters, rather than for him to describe or start it in any kind of conventional way. So he actually talks about the writing process a bit right there. Yeah. And it's such a neat precursor to so much of what we read, because he's saying, this is why it's good to use this epistolary format. Boom, here you go in 1817, guys. Wow. Run with this, you know, mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. Now, the narrator explains that Clara and Lothair came to live with Nate's family soon after his father died. His mother took over their care after they had become orphaned and their distant relation. As they grew older, Clara and Nate's bond grew, and it was expected that they would eventually marry one day. But Nate left for G, which I assume is Geneva? Yeah, probably. For his studies. Galesburg, maybe. Probably Galesburg. Possible. Galesburg, Illinois. And he was schooled under this famous physics professor, Spallanzani. But then there's this bit of a drive-by on Clara here. It says, Clara could not by any means be reckoned beautiful. That is the opinion of all who are by their calling competent judges of beauty. Architects wow. nevertheless praised the exact symmetry of her frame. The painters considered her neck, shoulders, and bosom almost too chastely formed, but then they fell in love with her wondrous hair and coloring. She's not good looking at all, but she's well constructed <laughs> physically. She's got or she's non-traditionally beautiful. There's something odd about her, I guess, is what he's trying to say. I don't know. I thought that was an odd, I thought it was odd as well to say nobody would say this girl was beautiful, but let me tell you, she was something. <laughs> well, what? Okay. I don't really know what to make of that, but I guess it is an odd beauty is all that it's is trying to Is this like express. an 1800s version of Butterface? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> could be. It's yeah, it could be. Not appropriate. She, but I wonder, you know, some of this might be translation because I meant to, we, we pulled this and copied it into the document from the internet. Uh, maybe Gutenberg. I'm not sure, but I, I'm going to go look it up before we do the second episode so I can tell you who the translator is for this. Yes. Because this was originally written in German, as we said at the top. Yeah. Now, Claire, she's very smart. 
and kind and lovely, and Nathaniel was very devoted to her. But Nathaniel was right about the arrival of Coppola casting a dark portent in his life. He felt like a supernatural evil was invading, and even Clara's logic couldn't really get him to be free of this feeling. It was very, so this is a, of the romantic era, you know, and this falling apart of their relationship felt very non-romantic and very realistic in a way. Mm. She just can't get into his dumb ideas. It's a, it's a divide that's too big in a way. Nathaniel's productions were indeed very tedious. His indignation at Clara's cold, prosaic disposition constantly increased, and Clara could not overcome her dislike of Nathaniel's dark, gloomy, boring mysticism so that they became mentally more and more estranged, without either of them perceiving it. The shape of the ugly Coppelius, as Nathaniel himself was forced to confess, was growing dimmer in his fancy, and it often cost him some pains to draw him with sufficient color in his stories, where he figured as the dread bogey of ill omen. That's a good place to stop as this uh, author is setting up what the real story is. So we got, a, we got a glimpse into what's going on with these characters. And in the next episode, we'll see how it all plays out. I want to thank Levi Nunez for rocking and rolling and being amazing. Please check out Loot the Body. Check out the videos on YouTube. Check out the music on Bandcamp. You will not be disappointed. It is gorgeous. Beautiful stuff. I want to thank some patrons as well. I'd like to thank Megan Grover. I'd like to thank... Morgan Tudball. I'd like to thank Alex Schmidt. Thomas Edward, thank you so much. Gary Reeves, thank you. Justin Ayers, thank you. Eric Weasland, thank you, if I'm saying that right. U-I-J-L-E-N. Uh, Aiden Broadhead, thank you. Sam P, thank you very much. And lastly, Dave Stinton. What? Dave Stinton. Aw, oh, what a sweet guy to subscribe. You're a patron of our show? He's read for us and he opened for us in Chicago and uh, oh my I God, steal yeah. jokes from him all the time. I still laugh about track <laughs> draft. <laughs> he just wrote a tweet that really made me laugh. He said, I hate it when I strongly identify with a character in a movie, and then they're the one you find out needs to change <laughs> for the better. Good old Dave Stinton. And next week, we're going to return with the Sandman part Du. Yes. It's going to take some exciting twists and turns, and I can't wait to talk about it because it's yeah. crazy stuff. Uh, I can't wait to finish reading it. And uh, that's all we have for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Here on HPPodcraft.com and Patreon. And as promised, here's a new track from Pitch Black Manor's album Night Creeps, which releases August 13th. Pre-sales start tomorrow, August 6th. PitchBlackManor.com. Hope you enjoy it. This is Heat Wave.